Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hi, Amber. And Haley Knopf. Hey, Amber. Hey, Alex. Boy, we've got a lot of news to cover again this week. How's everybody doing? You ready to get into some things? Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's certainly a lot going on. I know um, and we're going to get there's some extremely sad news to sort of dive into this week. I know, though, that we have uh, a very interesting main segment. You had a talk with Chris Villani. I did. Uh, yeah. Interesting environmental suit. What was that all about? Yeah, so Chris has some coverage about a suit against Exxon from the Massachusetts Attorney General. And it was at a, an unusual bit of, pro, of, of procedural posture where the company had said that the suit couldn't continue because of some First Amendment issues, which you wouldn't expect in an environmental suit against a big company. Right. So Chris helps explain what was going on there and how the suit's now gotten back on track. Exxon lost its bid to try to, to toss the suit out. I look forward to hearing that. Um, Chris is always great, and he's on top of all um, the stuff that's going on in Boston. So as I was referring to before, and as I'm sure everyone who is listening is aware, on Tuesday, there was a horrific shooting at a school in Texas that left 21 people dead, including at least 19 small children. That came 10 days after a shooting in a Buffalo grocery store that claimed 10 lives. Um, these tragedies, as they often do, immediately prompted a lot of extremely pointed discussions about the state of the country's gun laws, which will obviously continue for some time. But in a sort of somber bit of coincidental timing, the day after the Texas shooting, a New York federal judge happened to issue a pretty substantial opinion that got cheered by a lot of gun control advocates. The court upheld a New York state law that allows lawsuits against gun manufacturers, sellers, and distributors for creating a public nuisance that endangers collective safety and health through the sale of guns. So that was quite an eyebrow-raising opinion, especially considering the, uh, the context. Yeah, we've talked a lot on the show about how gun makers have a lot of insulation from liability when it comes to what's done with their products. So this would have been a big ruling no matter what. But in light of the last couple of weeks, it's even more significant. Can you kind of dive into more about what this lawsuit entailed? Yeah, the idea of trying to write laws to hold gun makers accountable for gun crimes is not new, but this law and this lawsuit um, dive a little into like a very specific area of the statute that I think is very interesting. So the suit was brought by a bunch of gun makers, trade groups, retailers who opposed this New York law that basically opened a number of sort of gun industry channels up for civil suits if the use of their guns resulted in a public nuisance. The gun makers argued that the law basically was overridden by the broad federal protections. There are federal protections that generally shield the gun industry from liability for illegal use of its products. But in the eyes of this New York judge, those federal protections are not absolute. And that sort of gives rise to what we're talking about here today. So can we get into some of the 
legal analysis behind this? Because I'm very, that was kind of my first question when I saw this headline was, what exactly is the is the ruling? Yeah, so there is a federal law in the books that basically provides gun makers broad liability protection for illegal uses of their products. But there is an exception for cases in which a gun industry party, be it a gun maker, a seller, or a distributor, quote, knowingly violated a state or federal statute applicable to the sale or marketing of the product, and the violation was a proximate cause of the harm for which relief is sought, which is a fancy way of saying if you sold it to somebody who wasn't allowed to have it or you marketed it in a way that was deceptive or unfair, if that was found to be in violation, then you don't have liability protection under this law. Now, the New York law is, pre- is written precisely to fit within this exception to the federal law. And according to the district judge, May D'Agostino, the legislators accomplished that goal. Um, she wrote, quote, Congress clearly intended to allow state statutes which regulate the firearms industry. A state statute establishing liability for improper sale or marketing of firearms is not an obstacle to any congressional objective of the PLCAA. That is the acronym of the federal law I was talking about. Um, The judge also wrote about a 2008 case where New York tried to bring the gun industry under the coverage of its general sort of public nuisance law. And the Second Circuit rejected that as too broad, basically saying you can't just loop these, like any industry you want, into this public nuisance law. But the remedy there was simply to write a specific nuisance law that explicitly regulates the gun industry, which this clearly does. This was passed last year, too, and it's obviously written about guns. It references guns. It is a law written to regulate guns, so it overcomes that sticky precedent from the uh, from the Second Circuit. So given the national circumstances we're all sadly living through, this must have been a really hopeful development for people that are looking to regulate gun makers. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting. I mean, these are, these are, I mean, this is what we do here. We do legal analysis. I mean, these are unspeakable tragedies yeah. that we have to, of course, keep speaking about because they keep happening. You know, I think that the legal sort of underpinnings are very interesting and very instructive here. And as you say, Amber, uh, New York Attorney General Letitia James, um, after this opinion was handed out, she directly referenced both the Texas and the Buffalo shootings. And she said she hoped that this opinion would provide, quote, a moment of light and hope um, in the wake of those massacres. There was a, uh, a statement from, a, from uh, the National Shooting Sports Foundation. This is the trade group that's leading the challenge against this New York law. Said it was disappointed in the ruling and that an appeal was forthcoming. So that's what's going on with that. I mean, I didn't think anybody would think that a district court ruling would be the end of the story uh, on this very yeah. contentious gun issue, obviously. But I did just want to point out it is um, a very busy time for gun rights litigation generally. Two weeks before the Texas shooting, the Ninth Circuit, um, the sort of often touted hyper-liberal Ninth Circuit, 
actually struck down California's ban on sales of semi-automatic weapons to adults under 21. This effectively lowers the purchasing age for semi-automatic weapons to 18 years old. And that decision drew a lot of new discussion after the Texas shooting where the 18-year-old suspect had purchased his guns legally. Now, he bought them in Texas. This is a California law. It's not related, but it was like it was an inflection point for this ruling, which had been handed down two weeks earlier. And as I think most people know who are listening to this show, the Supreme Court, as we speak, is preparing its opinion in a very closely watched case over a different New York gun law, the concealed carry law, which requires people who are seeking a license to carry a gun in public to show proper cause to do so. And the arguments that took place in November suggested that a majority of the judges might see that as an undue burden and might either pare back that law or knock it down entirely. So it's a very, you know, sort of fraught time right now where after things like this happen, the attention basically always turns to Congress, right? There are con- there are senators and congressmen who go on TV and talk about what we should do or what we should not do and all of that. And then in the middle of all that, the laws that are on the books are like quickly being shaped and um, contoured by the courts. And we're in the middle of that and we will continue to see more of it. So I want us to turn to um, some... Very entertaining courtroom drama um, here in California. And while the the case subject matter is not uh, more lighthearted, this uh, situation is definitely interesting. So last week, a federal judge pretty abruptly uh, declared a mistrial and recused himself from a sex trafficking case after getting upset with the public defender. It's obviously not that all unusual to see judges get testy with attorneys, but it's not every day you see a judge that's just like, you know what? I'm out. I'm done. We're out of here. Yeah, I want to hear more about this for sure. I love any kind of um, sort of, you know, heated exchanges in a courtroom. So what happened with the judge in this case? Well, and especially since like the public defender is always kind of painted as this like powerless figure who's just kind of going along for the ride and doing whatever he or she can. This is a truly unique situation. Let's learn more about it. Very unique. The judge was District Judge Otis D. Wright of the Central District of California. So Wright was overseeing a criminal trial for a woman accused of trafficking while operating a massage parlor. Um, And according to a transcript of the proceedings, this all centered on whether jurors could see that the defendant's feet were shackled. And when jurors weren't in the room, federal public defender Callie G. Steele made an oral motion for a mistrial saying, you know, it was possible the jury saw the shackles. We got to start over. Judge Wright actually just granted the motion um, saying he thought it all through. And the only way to actually know would be if, you know, they went and asked the jurors straight up, did you see shackles? Did you see shackles? And that defeats the entire purpose of the point of this (laughs) retrial. So he was just like, all right, sure, granted. Well, well, there's the power of suggestion, right? The idea (laughs) of saying, did you see? (laughs) What you should really say is like, did you notice anything 
untoward about the defendant or uh, or something, right? Ask about I the mean, footwear. Yeah, so yeah, it, something around the you know the foot area. <laughs> Go ahead. Regardless Amy. of how you would ask it, so far this all seems fairly standard. I mean, these kind of questions come up, and the judge weighed it out and decided, like, yep, okay, here's what we're gonna do. So, how did it get heated? Yeah, so Judge Wright clearly wasn't super happy about granting the motion. And when prosecutors objected to the mistrial order, the judge even said he didn't personally believe it was possible that the jurors could see the shackles. However, he said, quote, that is the representation that those who are seated over there have made to me in open court <laughs> officers of the court. You know, those those guys. Those people. O- over there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it all went downhill during this conversation between uh, Judge Wright and the prosecutor. Because as the two of them were discussing alternatives to a mistrial, uh, Steele stood up and asked to be heard. And that's when the judge just lost it. Okay, now we're at the part I wanted. So what did, <laughs> what did we get out of the judge here? First, he told Steele to sit down, saying to her, did I not give you what you asked for? Oh, okay. And Steele then said that she wanted to address the government's proposal. But Judge Wright was not having that. Here's, here's the big quote. And I'm going to recuse myself. Okay, we're done. Seriously, we are done. I'm no longer able to dispassionately play this game anymore because this is like fun and games. And I do believe that intentional misrepresentations are being made to the court. I'm going to recuse myself. I'm declaring a mistrial. It will go back on the calendar, go back on the wheel for reassignment. We are done. <laughs> that is, I, I love that the judge uh, referred to it as fun and games. I mean, you can get the yeah. vibe that he was being very like heated and, and pissy in this moment. Very much that vibe. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, and you know, I mean, like whatever, it's a serious trial and I don't want to be too glib about it, but I mean, I mean, you wonder if there is, I mean, this seems to be like you had to be there kind of moment just because yeah. like on paper, it seems like an escalation, but like, you know, interpersonal dynamics are a real thing in court. And if he was just really getting the sense that counsel was, was being this obstinate, a my cousin Vinny scenario. Is well, what yeah, I well know. exactly. I mean, if they, I mean, if he thinks the counsel's being obstinate or that if he really believe if he is like doing introspective, you know, assessment and he's like, I can't look at this fairly anymore. Yeah. It's not a pressing matter. Let's just assign it to somebody else. But you really don't see it a lot is the thing. Yeah. And it's, and yeah, we don't know if there was some tense relationship between the two of them even before Right, it's a public defender. She, she may have argued before him before. I was thinking about that too. I don't, you don't yeah. want to speculate, but it's, it's in the ether. Yeah. Well, I mean, the judge doesn't flat out say like, you're lying, but comes as close as a judge is going to. So that's also surprising yeah. to me too, that you don't often get that level of candor where the judge is like, it's all fun and games here and I'm going to recuse myself and uh, there were intentional misrepresentations. I'm out. Like, that's pretty bold. It is. It is. And I, yeah, we don't want to speculate too much, but we can say um, that for sure, Judge Wright thought that a mistrial was going to be a big inconvenience to an awful lot of people. Um, the government had people coming in from out of town. He He listed off all these things that were inconvenient in his mind. And he also clearly didn't think the jurors could see the shackles. So seems he felt his hands were tied with the motion because, yeah, it was just there's no way to resolve this other than 
just throwing it all out. So he's like, all right, fine. But anyway, now a different judge is assigned to the case and the new trial has not kicked off yet, according to the case docket. I, I checked the docket right before recording today, um, Thursday, uh, for our listeners. And I forgot that when you request a, a court transcript, your name is in the docket. So our reporter, Craig, his name was, there's a nice little docket entry for Craig in there. Yep. <laughs> Happy to be happy to have us a part of this record because it's such an interesting one to cover. It and is. one thing I would put your you know, I would bet down. money on for this new trial is that they'll be very careful about whether or not shackles can be seen. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think that's I think that's a, a safe bet. Yeah. <laughs> The top court in Massachusetts ruled this week that ExxonMobil can't use a free speech statute to duck a climate change suit brought by the state's attorney general. The ruling clears a hurdle enforcers faced as they look to hold companies accountable for misleading consumers about the risks of climate change, particularly those in the fossil fuel industry. Here to explain the ruling is our own Boston reporter, Chris Villani. Welcome back, Chris. It's always great to have you on the show. No problem. Thanks for having me. Well, set us up here. What's the basic allegations in this lawsuit? I know it was brought by the Massachusetts Attorney General, but I don't know all the particulars. So what was going on here? Sure. So this suit was filed after a multi-year investigation into Exxon by Attorney General Maura Healey. And some of the allegations mirror a case that already went to trial and resulted in a favorable verdict for Exxon uh, in New York. And essentially, the allegations boiled down to Exxon allegedly misleading consumers, but also their own investors about the dangers of climate change and trying to, quote unquote, greenwash uh, some of their conduct, making it appear that they're more favorable to the environment than they actually are. So that's essentially what Healy is arguing here. It's a little bit broader claim than the case in New York because it's filed under the Consumer Protection Statute of Massachusetts, Chapter 93A, which allows for trouble damages and all sorts of things if they are ultimately successful in this, in this litigation. Yeah, pretty serious suit. I mean, like you said, Exxon got out of a similar one in New York and they tried to um, get out of this suit as well. But this time they tried using a statute um, that was maybe a little unusual that you wouldn't first think of in the context of a case like this. What was Exxon's move here? Sure. So they, as will usually happen in lawsuits with big companies, they filed every motion to dismiss um, sure. jurisdictional grounds. You're more traditional. Uh, there, there's a failure to state a claim here, grounds. And then they also filed what's called a special motion to dismiss under Mass General Law Chapter 231 59H, which is strategic litigation against public participation but it's anti that. So it's slap, anti-slap. And this will let a defendant who thinks that they've been targeted because they're exercising their right of petition to file a special motion to dismiss. And it's meant to happen early on in the process so that it spares everybody the trouble of extensive discovery and spending a ton of money and spending a long time in court if this is something that is protected petitioning activity. So the difference between this special motion to dismiss under anti-slap and your more traditional, there's just no claim here or right. there's a jurisdictional issue, all of which were, were denied by the Superior Court Justice here. The difference is this is 
immediately appealable, and it slams the brakes on everything else. So it just stops the case until the motion is decided and then the appeal is decided. So that's why this ended up at the Supreme Judicial Court uh, as an interlocutory appeal. So they attempted to argue at the lower court that this is protected petitioning activity, and the lower court justice said, well, yes, some of these statements are. It's a pretty extensive complaint. There's a lot of allegations here. So yes, some of this is covered, but some of it isn't. So the anti-slap dismissal bid fails. We're going to allow this to go forward. The SJC affirmed, but under different grounds. They said that this statute just doesn't apply to the attorney general at all. So they didn't need to go through the process of sort of parsing Exxon statements like the lower court justice did. Yeah, I want to get into exactly how the justices reached that um, decision. But first, maybe we could talk about why it's a little weird to hear of Exxon using an anti-slap in this context. How does this usually come up? I mean, this is essentially a a First Amendment style protection. This this law is designed for that purpose. So it's just a little weird to have it come up in an enforcement context. Yeah. And as it turns out, according to the SJC, at least it shouldn't come up in an enforcement (laughs) context at all. Um, So under the statute, it protects parties in civil litigation. And the legislative intent, at least this was the attorney general's argument and obviously gained traction with the SJC, this is meant to protect the little guy. This is meant to protect people who are facing the, the crushing weight of litigation that even if they're successful, could be very expensive and take a long time. But they're being sued over protected activity. Like you said, First Amendment protected activity. So that's why these special motions to dismiss stop everything. No discovery. You you just slam the brakes, figure out this motion. If you're successful, it's over. And the moving party gets attorneys' fees and costs. So that's why it's meant to happen kind of early in the process here. Exxon argued that the statute saying that it applies to parties means anybody, a party in a civil case. This is an enforcement action, but it's a civil enforcement action. So that was Exxon's argument that this applies to the attorney general. She's a party in a case, just as any other party in a case would be. Clearly, the Supreme Judicial Court saw it differently. Well, we've obviously said that Exxon lost this motion. So what exactly did the high court in in Massachusetts say? I mean, we've kind of talked around it a little that they didn't like Exxon's arguments, but give me me the real deal about why they thought this was not applicable here. Well, and they sort of telegraphed, as they usually do, uh, which way they were going. This wasn't one based on oral arguments uh, that was hard to figure out. I would have been shocked, actually, if it went the other way, because... Right at the beginning, Exxon went in with an argument that the the justice, the lower court justice was wrong, and that if some of their, at least some of their statements are protected activity, then the case shouldn't go forward at all because this is all protected, uh, or this at least falls under the umbrella of protected petitioning activity. The SJC wasn't really interested in that argument, and right from the get-go asked, why do you think this applies to the attorney general? And when they looked at the actual text of the statute, they found that Exxon's interpretation of the term party is too broad if you're including the attorney general. And the AG's office is mentioned separately in the anti-slap statute as having the ability to intervene in anti-slap matters, but they're not mentioned otherwise. So what the SJC found is that it wasn't like the legislature forgot about the attorney general. I actually love those like nesting dolls of textualist reading. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it wasn't as though 
the the legislature just said, yeah, oops, we we forgot about the attorney general. What they wanted to do here was carve out a specific role for the AG in having the ability to intervene in these types of anti-slap motions if that was something that the office saw fit to do. But an enforcement action allowing the anti-slap motion to apply to this and kind of stop the work of enforcement, um, as Justice uh, Scott Kafker put it, it would put a roadblock up to the enforcement of the Commonwealth's laws. That's just not what the legislature had in mind when it created this anti-slap statute and allowed for this mechanism for private parties to escape litigation that's brought over protected activity. Yeah, it it seems like they were worried a bit about what a slippery slope this would cause, that this could Mm -hmm. really hamper all sorts of investigations by AGs and all sorts of civil suits that they bring. Yeah, exactly. And again, now we're talking about the the enforcement of laws as opposed to uh, just a dispute between parties. Um, and, and, And that's just a different ball game as far as the SJC is concerned. And it's particularly concerning because, like I said, with these types of motions, just everything else, the brakes are, are slammed. Right. This takes precedence over every other motion or proceeding in the case, and it's immediately appealable. So that eats up a lot of time as well. It went to the appeals court. Exxon made an argument there. Uh, I believe the SJC just sua sponte transferred it to, to them because we'd probably end up there anyway. So cut out the middleman, so to speak, and, and they made this ruling. So this will now allow the case to go forward because all of Exxon's other motions to dismiss were also denied. But those, of course, aren't immediately appealable. You can't appeal that until you have some sort of a final judgment. The anti-slap motion is different. This settles what is really a pretty interesting question of when a a free speech-based statute like this can be used against an enforcement action. And obviously here they said you can't do that. But we are left with that underlying big question of the case itself, and that's whether or not Exxon lied to consumers and investors about climate change. What are the next steps to get to resolution on that? I mean, I imagine we're still a ways away from anything um, being resolved there. Yeah. Now now we'll go into sort of your traditional litigation track in state court. So like I said, all the other motions to dismiss, Exxon brought several of them or had several different grounds for motions to dismiss. They were all denied. So now you go into discovery, presumably a summary judgment phase, and then you know we'll see, maybe a trial if it, if it gets to that point. So it's going to take a while. Now the litigation kind of starts back up. Um, it will almost assuredly take place under a, a different attorney general. Uh, Maura Healy is currently the front runner to be Massachusetts' next governor. So uh, we'll see whether it's Andrea Campbell or Shannon Liss Reardon or somebody else, one of the attorney generals, uh, attorney general candidates whose office uh, inherits this case. And at some point down the line, we'll we'll see whether there's a, a resolution. But now we get back sort of on a normal litigation track after this interlocutory diversion to the SJC to settle the anti-slap question. Yeah, I mean, you called it a diversion, and this really was. But what do you make of that, Chris? I mean, for me, it it feels like, oh, anytime an attorney general goes after a company around climate change and these big ticket issues, we're going to see the companies fight back with everything they've got. Because this surprised me. It was an, an unusual argument here. Yeah, it was really a, a different kind of argument. And and what Exxon has argued is that Healy, who is... Uh, a Democrat, uh, unabashedly progressive Democrat, uh, is trying to impose her own climate orthodoxy, essentially, and that she has a standard 
that's just impossible to meet. And Exxon's saying, look, we're a big company. We're trying to meet the, the energy needs of a planet of, of 7, 8 billion people, whatever, uh, trying to limit greenhouse gas emissions. We have to walk that tightrope. We have to be able to express views about climate change, about climate in general, about the role of fossil fuels, about the role of energy and energy policy. And we have to do this without worrying about getting sued over it or being the target of an enforcement action. And this is politically motivated. So that's where kind of the free speech context, the free speech argument came from here for for Exxon uh, trying to use the anti-slap statute. Yeah, I think we're going to have a lot of fireworks yet to watch in this one. Glad you'll be covering it for us, Chris. Uh, appreciate you explaining all of this. Anytime. Happy to do it. Thanks a lot. We'd like to end our show with something offbeat. And um, how's everybody feel about modern art, particularly about unusual mediums of art? Amber, you and I live in the New York area. Haley, you live in Los Angeles. These are cultural centers. There are modern art museums. I always feel like a little bit of a pretender when I go in there. And I'm <laughs> like, this is very interesting to me. But if it's like abstract or I'm like, oh, you know, the shape, the colors, the form. Uh, I'm like doing bad Woody Allen cosplay or something. I don't know. Um, well, pseudo-intellectual... <sighs> Crap! I, you I know. Key, the key is to just look just at the piece of art long enough that it makes it look like you're really thinking about it. <laughs> and then you can just walk away. Pseudo-intellectual. This is what I I'm saying. I would like yeah. to invite you guys to think about the most delicious art of all, which is cheese-based art. Ooh. So last week, Yum. two contractors for the federal government's wall along the U.S.-Mexico border reached a settlement with an artist who accused them of intentionally demolishing his art project that was created from cheese, and it was just yards away on private property from the border wall, this was a cheese wall. Oh, boy. You're just another cheese in the wall. <laughs> Look, my first thought was, shouldn't the cheese wall be in Wisconsin? But no, we're in California here. Interesting location. If I can interject for a moment, I'm from the suburbs of Chicago. I grew up not far from the Wisconsin border. Just over the border in Wisconsin is something called the Mars Cheese Castle. Oh, uh, I know, here we go. I know producer Steve knows what I'm talking about. He knows. He's off mic right now, but he's laughing. He knows. No, well, here's the thing. It's not a castle made of cheese, which would be oh, really cool. Alex. It's you just can't... a medieval, it's just a medieval themed cheese dispensary. No. Uh, it, it's just a place where they sell cheese. And they were like, I mean, well, what if we made uh, it a castle? Places that have cheese. That's also yeah, good. Um, I'm all for that. But come on. You have no retaining thinking. wall of cheese, which uh, is what this sounds well, like. Well, yeah. I'm disappointed. There, we need some some laws out there for when you can call yourself a cheese castle. A, a cheese castle. <laughs> because right. yeah. regulations stack. We also, in Nebraska, there's the Corn Palace. Of course. Which is what also is not that? made of corn. It's, it's yeah. just like See, a crappy gymnasium. And no. you can... I don't want any of this. It's the difference between the description of like what is inside and what is the actual material. 
anyway, Amber, what's okay. going on with the cheese uh, let wall? Let me get back to things that are actually cheese-based, like really built out yeah, of Yeah, I mean, let's talk about actual cheese walls. I mean, okay. not, not cheese walls. <laughs> the cheese wall artist is named Cosimo Cavallaro. He, along with a nonprofit, sued a couple of builders who allegedly destroyed this artwork in October of 2019. They say in the suit that it was a violation of the Visual Artists' Rights Act. And that's a law that protects artists by prohibiting the destruction of any kind of visual art as long as it has a recognized stature. So that can be anything from like paintings, sculptures, drawings. In this case, I guess the wall is the equivalent of a sculpture. So that's sort of the setup for the legal part of this. But I want to dive into what exactly he built. Well, first of all, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm always interested in when the law defines what art is, but that's not at issue here so much. But I want to talk about the circumstances under which the wall came down. I mean, yeah. it's a very fraught part of the country. It's near the border wall. Did it? It's very hot. I don't know what kind of cheese he was using. Oh, I'll I was tell thinking ya. about. Oh, okay, well then, okay, well, I <laughs> I was going to step on it. So please, please tell us okay. tell us more about the circumstances of the wall and its demise, Amber. I'm very sad about it. I might cry in the middle of the segment. So okay. <laughs> Cavalier leased 14 acres on of private property in San Diego County. It was 10 yards away from the access road that got you to the actual federal border wall that was being erected. And this was obviously meant to stand in contrast to that. That's why he selected the lease very nearby. And he was using blocks of Mexican cotilla cheese that weighed more than 50 pounds each. So oh imagine my. this. I mean, this is a big, these are big cheese blocks. And apparently he had this process where he salted them and drained them of water to actually make them a pretty stable building material. Well, that's what I was, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but like yeah. cotilla cheese is like a crumbly cheese. And when I read that, I was like, how would that even work? But it does if he had a process of he did. sort of turning it basically into a cheese brick. Yes. That's very much what I would envision here. The logical choice is the Parmesan with the rind. <laughs> that's basically a huge block. But thematically, if you're near the border with Mexico, you pick a Mexican cheese. South of, yeah, if you're near the border, you, a Mexican yeah. cheese. Yes. So okay. he intended this installation to be a thousand foot long cheese wall right next to the border. Um, again, this is on private property. It was in it's no so way. It's so important to have goals in life, folks. I mean, <laughs> this I just, is, I I'm cannot stress my that list, enough. Honestly. So I do want to stress again, this was on private property and it was not obstructing any access to the actual border wall site that the federal government was working on. So his intent, of course, and this is in the uh, complaint um, in, in the suit as well. He said that it was meant to show the ephemerality and the waste in building any kind of wall no matter the materials involved. So Ooh. there you go. Deep. So it was perhaps designed to like degrade a bit? Yeah, I mean, eventually for sure. But okay, so by August 2019, this cheese wall was about three feet wide, almost 70 feet long. So we'd made some <laughs> significant progress on this. Nice. The cheese blocks uh, are said to eventually like harden and turn brown. And he compared <laughs> it to how copper sculptures oxidize, which I just think a yeah. lot of these details are very funny. It's like the Statue of Liberty, you know. A lot of people don't know the Statue of Liberty used to be the color of a penny, and then it oxidized, and now it's the delightful sort of seafoam green it is today. Why aren't we building more things with cheese? Haley asked the right question, though. Why aren't we building more things out of cheese? Uh, that's We got to ponder that. So okay, It hardens. So here's, it codifies. <laughs> here's where the trouble came. 
the companies working on the government's border wall came to the site. They used large construction vehicles to dismantle this cheese wall. Uh, it was over six feet tall at its highest point. So they had to literally like plow down a bunch of the blocks. They ground cheese into the ground. They <laughs> full on removed other blocks from the site entirely, leaving basically all that was left in their wake was rubble and dirt. It was pretty much demolished. Somebody gave the order, Mr. Gorbachev, <laughs> camembert down this wall. I was oh, waiting for wow, you to make great. a joke of that uh, color, Nothing? Alex. All right. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> you were waiting okay, on Alex anyway. to make a cheesy joke? Sure. I mean, there nice. are only so many cheeses. I, you know, I, I probably could have done better. But okay. So they killed the cheese wall. We don't know the exact contours of the settlement that was reached here, but I did want to give a couple more details about, you know, the claimed damages. So the artist said he'd been deprived of the opportunity to communicate his artistic message through the cheese wall, a message that he has spent years <laughs> contemplating, and to see the cheese wall at its full length stand in <laughs> contrast to the border wall. The cheese wall at its full length. Oh. I just like that they literally, they no other name. It really is called the cheese wall. That kills me. So in addition to the economic harm, they say, uh, from the loss of the actual materials, because there was a lot that went into making these bricks and getting them to the site and all of that. The destruction also apparently allegedly limited this artist's opportunity for further exposure for the work, but also for him following through on plans to take some of the cheese bricks and cast them in bronze <laughs> to display them at museums and galleries around the world after the installation of the cheese wall was complete. He had big plans. Wow. So really, we're all affected by this. Yeah, we're never going to walk into a museum and see that bronze depiction of one of the cheese blocks. It's really disappointing. I've known a few people who have been visual artists. None of them have worked with cheese as a medium. They're not real artists then. That's right. Well, I mean, that's, right. that's not really for you or I to say. But I, but <laughs> I anyway, feel comfortable with you saying it, Haley. I suspect... Does this guy, I mean, does does he often work with cheese? Are there other cheese projects? Or was did he wake up one day with an epiphany to do a cheese wall? Or was this building from something? Thank you so much for asking, because this is all I really <laughs> wanted to talk about in this segment. So he has, in fact, been a professional artist for more than 30 years. He's long used perishable mm. items. Uh, he's used ham in previous works and also chocolate. I could get behind some chocolate art as well. Just want to put that out there. But he's also dabbled with cheese before. He's previously covered a chair, a house, and even British supermodel Twiggy in <laughs> melted cheese for some oh. of his pieces. So he's got a long history and knows how to um, use that medium to its fullest artistic potential. What a career. What am I doing with my life? I know. What are we doing? Great question. I also just want to point out in the little show doc we use. Amber didn't say it, but I do want to, I, I didn't want to glide past it. Amber wrote here, he's dabbled in fromage before, <laughs> which I really appreciate. And I didn't thank want you. it to go unsaid. So I'm saying it, but you I appreciate wrote that. It. I couldn't so, bring myself to say it, but thank you. I no, I wanted, yeah, I mean, the, the world guy, has to know. <laughs> he is out there on the front lines. I mean, he's literally where at the influx of commerce and politics and governance and all of this waging the cheese wars. And all that that entails. That's right. The cheese wars indeed. My final thought for everyone and, and our listeners as well is just obviously I had a lot of fun preparing this segment because I am a big lover of all things cheese. But one thing I did before I, I sat down to, to write some stuff in our script today 
was Google cheese art. And I would encourage everyone to do that because you do get some expected things of like, you know, boring prints you hang on your wall that depict a type of cheese, like something you'd see in a kitchen. But you also get a lot of things carved out of cheese. So apparently this artist is not alone in finding this to be a grand medium for expression. And I think we should all pay it a little more respect. Well, I can't promise I'll be back next week because I might have to switch careers. Pursue a new career. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would well, I think that. that will conclude. I think that will conclude litigation con queso for <laughs> this week. It I can't speak indeed. to future segments. But, <laughs> I'd like to yeah. bring it back as often as I can. But you're right. Let's wrap up for today. Thanks for being with me, Alex. Thank you. And Haley. Thank you. We also would like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest this week, Chris Villani, and our contributing reporters, Craig Clough, Brandon Lowry, and Dave Simpson. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review. That really does help other people find our show. So write a review, give us five stars. We definitely appreciate it. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week. Cheese wool!